Hi, everyone. We have a really unique and interesting research opportunity coming at you from one of the University of Washington residents, Andrea Sanchez. This project uses mental imagery to help you with cesarean delivery. So to enroll, if you're interested, go ahead and go onto our website at obgyninternchallenge.com slash c-section. You'll get to a page that says visualize it. There you'll find visualize it where you're able to go on and enroll through the red cap link that is there. And once complete, you'll receive an email confirmation with a link to the video. After that, we'll send you a one month follow-up survey to see how you're doing with learning about C-sections. Thanks for considering. Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, Check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. So today on the podcast, we're going to head back to some GYN topic um, and try to tackle the big wide world of endometriosis. So Faye, what are our learning objectives? So for endometriosis, we are first going to define it, then we're going to review the different theories behind the etiology of endometriosis and discuss some risk factors. We'll then understand how to evaluate for and how to diagnose endometriosis. And finally, of course, we're going to talk about the management of endometriosis. For more on chronic pelvic pain specifically, go back to our episode on chronic pelvic pain where we talk with Dr. Eva Reyna, um, and we'll post the link for that uh, on our episode notes this time around. So, Nick, let's start us off. You know, what is endometriosis? Yeah. So, endometriosis is a gynecologic condition where endometrial glands and stroma occur somewhere outside of the uterine cavity. But like endometrial glands and stroma in the uterus, these also respond to hormonal shifts during the menstrual cycles. Now, most of the time, these endometriosis lesions are located in the pelvis, but you can also find them in other places like the bowel, on the diaphragm, even in the pleural cavity. And there's a number of reasons to care about endometriosis too. I mean, it is benign, it's not cancerous, but it can cause dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, chronic pain, and infertility as just some of the symptoms of the disorder. Hey, tell me a little bit more about who this affects, what risk factors there are, and how common is it? 
So endometriosis is actually more common than actually I thought it was. So it occurs in 6 to 10% of reproductive age women. So up to 1 in 10 women could have endometriosis. But importantly, it's also present in approximately 38% of women with infertility and 71 to 87%, depending on the study that you look at, of patients with chronic pelvic pain. So definitely something that can cause quite a bit of pathology and something that we as OBGYNs should definitely pay attention to. There's really no data to suggest that the incidence of endometriosis is increasing, but more likely it is being recognized and also being diagnosed more often nowadays. There is a familial association. So first degree relatives of someone with endometriosis are at a higher risk for also developing it, but the inheritance pattern is most likely polygenic or multifactorial. So Nick, what about risk factors? So what are things that are more likely to be associated with endometriosis? Yeah, so I'll kind of qualify here to say that there are a lot of these risk factors that kind of seem a little strange, admittedly. But some are familiar. You know, there's nulliparity that certainly seems to go along with a lot of obstetric and gynecologic conditions. Prolonged exposure to endogenous estrogen, so in this case, something like early menarche or late menopause seem to be risk factors. Shorter menstrual cycles, heavy periods, and obstruction of menstrual outflow can also be considered risk factors. Increased height and lower BMI in combination with higher consumption of trans unsaturated fats can also be considered risk factor. Um, I'm not sure I know a bunch of tall, thin people eating lots of french fries, Faye. Um, I'm jealous. (laughs) I'm jealous. Um, But those have been associated with endometriosis. And again, to qualify, these are risk factors. This doesn't mean that if you're one of those tall people with a low BMI eating french fries and fried chicken that you're going to get endometriosis. But the association is there. Right. And certainly you're not going to treat endometriosis by stopping eating French fries or fried chicken. I I mean, I would need to cope with endometriosis by eating some French fries and fried chicken, I think. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we'll kind of get off of that distraction train. Faye, how does endometriosis actually happen? So endometriosis, like you said before, Nick, is basically when there is endometrial tissue that is outside of the uterine cavity, and it will implant, grow, and essentially elicit an inflammatory response through COX-2 activity. Um, And it can lead to the overproduction of prostaglandins, which then can over time lead to chronic inflammation. Um, And that is what's thought to trigger those things like pain, infertility, and also why endometriosis will usually have flares that coincide with patients' menstrual cycles. So some patients may have more pain, for example, around the time of their period. There's also a factor of nerve growth factor, and this can be highly expressed in endometriotic tissue, which leads to an increased density of nerve fibers. And this can, of course, then explain that increased sensitivity and pain and can also explain the central sensitization or the lowering of the threshold of pain in patients who have endometriosis. Um, And if this sounds unfamiliar to you, go ahead and go back to our chronic pain episode to remember what all of those things are. And then, you know, I think we would be remiss to talk about endometriosis without talking about the Samson's theory of retrograde menstruation, which I think is like the first thing that we learn about endometriosis whenever we learn about it. So it's the most common or popular theory um, about how endometriosis occurs. And it says it happens when endometrial cells flow backwards through the fallopian tubes into the peritoneal cavity during menses. But 
actually up to 90% of women have some amount of retrograde menstruation, but not everybody, like not 90% of women have endometriosis. And so likely there has to be multifactorial causes of endometriosis where this retrograde menstruation leads to ectopic endometrial tissue that then interacts with altered immunity, imbalance of like cell proliferation, aberrant signaling, and genetic factors. As you can see, Nick, my hands are waving a lot. And that just means that we as OBGYNs don't truly understand the exact mechanism by which endometriosis occurs. Last but not least, I just want to highlight again that chronic inflammation and endometriotic lesions can distort the pelvic anatomy through other things like adhesions, endometriomas, um, and other substances like cytokines and prostaglandins. And these can lead to a hostile environment for normal ovarian function, fertilization, and implantation, which further argues for a possible mechanism for infertility in patients who have endometriosis. So enough hand-waving for now, Nick. Um, Let's talk about how we can evaluate for endometriosis. So, you know, if a patient were to come into you, what are some things that you would elicit on their history and physical? Yeah, that's a great place to start because the history and physical really forms the foundation for endometriosis, I think. Patients will be presenting during their reproductive years with pelvic pain, for instance, a complaint like dysmenorrhea or dyspareunia. Um, they can also present with complaints like infertility or maybe an ovarian mass that was picked up on ultrasound or with an evaluation for pelvic pain, maybe through the emergency department. However, there are also lots of patients with endometriosis who are asymptomatic. The diagnosis is most likely to be made, though, in people who have symptoms of endometriosis. Go back to that episode where we talked to Dr. Reina about chronic pelvic pain. Remember that you have that PPUBS framework that can help you make a determination about endometriosis. To go through that again, start with the first P, pain. Can you describe the pain? What does it feel like? Then go to the second P, periods, which is getting a good menstrual history. So is the pain surrounding menstruation or line up with other parts of the menstrual cycle? What do the periods look like? Again, really, really dive into just the natural history of this person's cycle. The U is for urinary symptoms. Again, endometriosis lesions on the bladder can be associated with frequency, urgency, painful voiding. The B is for bowel symptoms. These symptoms can be very variable. um, Things like diarrhea, constipation, dyskesia, bowel cramping. And then finally, the S is for sexual dysfunction. Peritoneal or deeply infiltrating endometriosis can present with dyspareunia. Um, We have an upcoming episode about female sexual dysfunction where we'll get a little bit more into that specifically. With the physical exam, this can also be really variable depending on location and size of the actual endometriotic implants. So one place actually that I think is really important to examine during your physical is the posterior fornix. Um, along the uterosacrals, feel for adnexal masses, feel for immobility or lateral displacement of the cervix or uterus. Again, something that suggests that there is scarring where there shouldn't be scarring. Um, an exam, though, can be completely normal. So even if you don't find anything on exam, that doesn't rule out endometriosis entirely. I guess kind of thinking about that, too, we should be looking for other causes of pelvic pain beyond endometriosis, too. Absolutely. And so, you know, 
other than your history and physical exam, we always talk about getting labs and getting imaging. So there's no pathognomonic lab for endometriosis. You know, sometimes people will say like the CA125 can be elevated, but we don't usually routinely order this for endometriosis itself because there are many reasons that the CA125 could be elevated, right? Like it could be elevated in things like, you know, cancer, other ovarian masses, things like that. We would also order imaging. Sometimes ultrasound is usually all you need. You can see things like endometriomas. You may even see nodules. But more specifically, you may see other masses that are not associated with endometriosis and would make you more concerned for something like cancer or other cysts, for example. And so really, you know, if you're thinking about a patient who's coming to you and they are postmenopausal, that is much less likely to be endometriosis since most of the time endometriosis does get better with menopause. Sometimes you can also consider MRI, and then of course you will also be able to see if there are other things that can cause pelvic pain, for example, like fibroids. So Nick, I know we've talked a little bit now about like history and physical labs and imaging. Talk to me about how we actually diagnose endometriosis. Yeah, so I think we should split this into the presumptive diagnosis of endometriosis and the definitive diagnosis. Because endometriosis is technically a pathologic diagnosis, so you need histology of a lesion biopsy during surgery to truly make the pathologic diagnosis. But sometimes surgery isn't desired, it's not possible yet, you have reasons to really not do surgery, Um, and so you can make a presumed diagnosis of endometriosis based on a combination of signs, symptoms, and imaging findings. And often this clinical diagnosis is enough to start therapy that's low risk and easily tolerated. We'll talk more about therapy later. If patients improve, you can have a presumptive diagnosis and hold off on surgery too, not putting the patient through those specific risks. For the definitive diagnosis though, you do need surgery technically. So when do we do surgery? It's usually indicated for persistent pelvic pain, not responding to those initial medical therapies that are frontline for the presumptive diagnosis of endometriosis or for the evaluation of severe symptoms that limit a patient's function. Um, And then finally, surgery can also be considered for coexisting anatomic abnormalities too. Surgeries for endometriosis are usually performed by laparoscopy. During laparoscopy, you can get both definitive diagnosis and treatment. Peritoneal lesions on the laparoscope will often appear reddish or bluish. They're irregularly shaped little islands. You may hear something like powder burn lesions. You may also see on the peritoneal surface these white opacifications or translucent blebs. So there's a lot of different kind of appearances of endometriosis, but they generally, again, have these sort of small, raised, funky appearances. There is something called the Allen Masters syndrome, which is a reference to scarred or puckered peritoneal surface. You can also see dense fibrous disease and adhesions as a result of endometriosis. And then, of course, the related condition, the endometrioma, is also definitive for endometriosis. Kind of building from here, once we've gotten into surgery and we're thinking about pathology, it gives us an opportunity to sort of more characterize endometriosis, right? 
Absolutely. So um, here we're going to talk a little bit about the pathologic categorizations and also surgical staging. So to start off with pathologic categorizations, these are divided into things like superficial peritoneal lesions, which is exactly what they sound like. They're kind of those on-the-surface um, lesions on the peritoneum, for example. You can also have ovarian lesions, which would be like your endometriomas. And also you can have deeply infiltrating lesions. And these are things like solid endometriosis that's situated more than five millimeters deep to the peritoneum. The other way of classifying or staging endometriosis is through surgical staging. Um, and this is usually reported in operative findings so that other people can kind of get a sense of what the degree of endometriosis is in that patient's abdomen or pelvis so that they have a better idea if they have to go back to do surgery. Now, it's important to know that surgical staging is just the amount of disease that the surgeon sees, and it does not correlate with the presence or severity of symptoms, though there are some studies that have shown an inverse correlation with advanced stages of um, surgical staging of endometriosis and prognosis for fertility treatment. So there are four stages to surgical staging. Stage Stage one is just minimal disease, meaning isolated implants, no significant adhesions. Stage two is mild endometriosis, so you may have superficial implants that are less than five centimeters in total and are scattered on the peritoneum and ovaries, but there's no significant adhesions once again. Stage three is correlated with moderate disease when there's multiple implants, both superficial and deep. There can be paratubal and periovarian adhesions, which may be evident when you take a look. Stage four is the most severe form of disease where there are multiple implants, both superficial and deep, including large ovarian endometriomas, and there can be filmy and dense adhesions that are usually present. Usually, sometimes in stage four, if the adhesions are really, really um, firm, this is sometimes that old saying that you may hear some gynecologists say, which is like that frozen pelvis where there's so many adhesions that you really can't manipulate anything in that pelvis. Hey, I think that's about all the time that we have for today, but we'll come back for part two of endometriosis to talk more about treatment. That sounds great. Um, so to summarize, uh, in terms of endometriosis, just remember that it is when there are endometrial glands and stromas that occur outside the uterine cavity that then lead to things like pain uh, and infertility and dysmenorrhea. It occurs in 6 to 10% of reproductive age women, but is more common in people who have infertility and chronic pelvic pain. There are risk factors like nulliparity, prolonged exposure to endogenous estrogen, shorter menstrual cycles, increased height, lower BMI, and high consumption of trans fats. But just remember that these are risk factors, meaning that stopping one thing, like stopping your consumption of trans fats, is not going to treat your endometriosis. The etiology of endometriosis, while it's still, it is still contentious, is thought to maybe occur um, first from retrograde menstruation and as well as multiple interactions with altered immunity, imbalance of cellular proliferation, aberrant signaling, and genetic factors. This can then lead to things like chronic inflammation and endometriotic lesions that can distort the pelvic anatomy and lead to pain, infertility, and all the other issues that we previously discussed. The evaluation for endometriosis really starts with your history and physical Patients, again, often presenting during their reproductive years with a variety of pelvic complaints, infertility, or even ovarian mass. You can start with the P-PUBS framework. Again, P for pain, second P for periods, U for urinary symptoms, B for bowel symptoms, and S for sexual dysfunction. With your physical exam, again, findings will be variable, but you may feel nodules in the posterior fornix, along the uterosacrals, adnexal masses, immobility or lateral displacement of the cervix or uterus, or have a completely normal exam. 
There's no lab that's pathognomonic for endometriosis, though CA-125 can be elevated. Imaging findings often just rely upon ultrasounds, but you can consider MRI um, to look again for other causes of pelvic pain, such as complex fibroids or adhesive disease. Diagnosis is either definitive or presumptive. Presumptive diagnosis is diagnosis is based on signs, symptoms, and imaging findings. Um, definitive diagnosis is based on surgery and pathologic diagnosis from the lesions biopsied during surgery. Surgery is indicated for evaluation of severe symptoms that limit function, persistent pain that doesn't respond to medical therapy, or treatment of anatomic abnormalities. Usually we will uh, do surgery via laparoscopy to look for lesions um, in the peritoneum, as well as Allen-Masters syndrome, dense fibrous disease, or even endometriomas. Endometriosis can be categorized pathologically and staged surgically. Pathologically, you can be superficial peritoneal endometriosis, an ovarian lesion such as endometrioma, and or deep infiltrating endometriosis, which is solid endometriosis that's situated more than five millimeters deep to the peritoneum. Surgical staging goes from stage 1, which is minimal disease with isolated implants, stage 2, which is mild disease with implants that are superficial and less than 5 centimeters. Stage 3 includes moderate disease with multiple implants, peritubal and periovarian adhesions, and stage 4 is severe disease with multiple superficial and deep implants, including large endometriomas, often with filmy and dense adhesions present. All right, Nick, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode on endometriosis. Um, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, and you can also find us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, where you can donate to the show. You can find show notes for this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to give us a suggestion for what we should talk about next or corrections for any of our shows or just want to say hi to us, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 